0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics,
1: trends,
0: discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpets weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Joshua Taylor. Thank you for having me. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Vladimir Putin is moving to total war, was the title of our Trumpet Hour program on Wednesday. It truly is stunning how brutal the Russian offensive is getting as the Ukraine war grinds through its 10th month. The latest evidence of this can be seen in the city of Bakhmut. To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah.
2: Yes, it's uh, it's really escalating over there. Just over the last several hours, Russia has launched one of the biggest missile attacks of the whole war. With um, about 76 missiles launched, Ukraine was apparently able to intercept 60 of these, but the dozen or so that evaded the defenses the defenses still did some serious damage. There were at least four cities that were hit, and apparently some critical infrastructure was damaged or destroyed uh, because right now there are just vast power outages in these cities. So these kinds of missile attacks are getting more and more frequent and more devastating. But I would like to update listeners today mostly on the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, as you just mentioned there. Uh, A great deal of the fighting, is beginning to be concentrated in this one city and it's becoming just such a grueling and relentless battle of attrition there that many are now actually comparing it to the infamous battle of verdun back in the first world war verdun was you know the longest battle of world war one coming in at about 10 months Within just a few weeks, the warfare turned the area into a wasteland of mud and blood and human remains. Some of the Catholics who survived it said that hell, from what they'd heard from the pulpit, was not as bad as Verdun had been, or, or couldn't be as bad you know, as, as what they experienced. And of course, there were just catastrophic casualties on both sides, over half a million dead and wounded. So the battle in Bakhmut, Ukraine, isn't yet anywhere near those kinds of numbers, but it is a meat grinder and just a slow motion nightmare that's unfolding there right now. So the Russians first started to shell Bakhmut back in May, but the main assault on it didn't begin until August, and then that main assault intensified a great deal just last month. And in the time since then, Russia's grip on several other areas has been weakened by the Ukrainians, and this has made the Russians just focus more and more on Bakhmut. This, is, uh, this city is one of very few front lines, actually, where Russia is still on the offensive, so its importance to the Russians really can't be overstated. But it's also of very deep importance to Ukraine. You know, Bakhmut controls the Ukrainian logistics of a huge area. It's also a key transport hub. Several big arteries, major rail lines and roadways intersect there. So if Russia can wrest it from Ukraine, that'll be just a massive blow to the defenders. And it will let Russia establish a badly needed supply hub. And from there, Russia could very likely push past the present contact line into a region that's actually much better terrain for future offenses, just the way the lay of the land is, things would really open up for the Russians, um, especially with offensives towards Slovyansk, which is a major goal for, for Russia. So there's a lot on the line in Bakhmut, and that's why this city is being called the key to Donetsk. And that's why it's becoming a meat grinder and just a modern Verdun of indescribable tragedy. Casualties right now for both sides are currently unknown, but the eyewitness reports and the snippets of video footage that have emerged from it are uh, painting a picture of just extreme devastation and very heavy casualties on both sides.
0: You mentioned that the uh, the offensive in this city increased just in the last month. Can you tell us, uh, there, there are reports that it is being dominated, this offensive, by a uh, a private military group that is, has close ties to Vladimir
2: Putin. Explain that. Sure, yes. Yeah, for the last couple of months now, the Bakhmut sector of the Donbass front line has been dominated by Russia's infamous Wagner Group. So this is not an official part of the Russian military. It's actually a quasi-private kind of a military contractor outfit. Um, mm-hmm. The soldiers are private, and they're unaccountable. And, you know, they named their army after the German composer Richard Wagner, who was Adolf Hitler's favorite composer and who is said to have been passionate about the Third Reich. Um, So you see a glimpse of their extremism, even just in that name. And the Wagner group is very powerful. It has long acted as sort of like Vladimir Putin's invisible hand in places like Venezuela, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and uh, the Central African Republic. They've assassinated numerous important people and they've even taken over strategic territories on Putin's behalf, including playing a pretty big role in Russia's annexation of Crimea um, You know, several years ago. One interesting thing is that many of their recent recruits are actually prisoners. These are men who are told that they can win their freedom from a life sentence or from some other terribly long sentence. If they go to Ukraine to fight for Putin, so this is—it's uh, one reason why Putin seems utterly unconcerned about throwing men into kind of a meat grinder there in Bakhmut. These men are mostly Wagner Group operatives, and in most cases, he doesn't even count their numbers when he publishes, you know, casualty reports. I've got a quote here from Seriy Cherivati. He's a spokesman for Ukraine's Eastern Military Command. He said. For the Russians, the losses they suffer in Bakhmu is not an important factor. The first people that Wagner sends in are always the convicts and other poorly trained men, and only behind them come the more professional soldiers. So anyway, that's one reason why this has been just uh, profoundly demoralizing for the Ukrainians, because the Russians just have numbers that never seem to stop. And the Kiev Independent this week said, In these conditions... The common belief about Russia's poor effectiveness as a fighting force can quickly melt away. And then they quote a soldier who just returned from Bakhmut's front lines who said, the Ukrainian leadership tells everyone about the huge casualties suffered on the Russian side. But from what I could see around Bakhmut, things are more or less okay for Russia. So anyway it's a it's a deeply significant battle that's underway there and Russia seems to have just an nearly infinite supply of these Wagner group operatives that it keeps on throwing into it that makes it almost impossible for Ukraine to uh to defend and if Russia is able to take it that could be a big turning point. Uh,
0: listening to this it it just makes me think of all of the times here over the last 10 months when uh people have been talking about Uh, how Russia is on the ropes, that this is uh, kind of the end of the line for Putin. He overextended his hand and so on. And it seems that he keeps pulling more aces out of his sleeve. Uh, And we have been looking at this from a standpoint of Bible prophecy all along. And so our analysis informed by that has been on Putin's side from the beginning, from the standpoint of who is going to ultimately triumph. Maybe you can just...
2: uh, talk about the the reason
0: why we are looking
2: at it that way. Sure, yeah, and you're right. There's been a lot of Western optimism over the last uh, 10 months or so about the demise of Putin. A lot of people are you know, uh, writing his epitaph early, um, but Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has identified Vladimir Putin as a man who is fulfilling a specific prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. That's in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and those prophecies show that he will soon be leading not just Russia but a huge alliance of Asian nations and he'll be leading them into World War 3. So it's really with that in mind that we we really, you know, take a look at this whole situation and we think that however the situation pans out in the short term and as bitter as it may be to say it we should expect putin to win the war so this this modern verdun that's happening in bakhmut could end up being a big step in that direction and mr Flurry has written a booklet all about putin and these prophecies it's called the prophesied prince of russia and it shows that this means there are some truly dark times ahead for ukraine for russia really for the whole world but he also emphasizes in that booklet that all All of this darkness will not last long, and it will give way to just a a hope-filled future. All right.
0: Well, thank you, Mr. Jacques. Russia's aggression in Ukraine is driving substantial military buildup in Europe. This week, Germany's parliament pushed forward on a significant defense purchase that should raise eyebrows. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer.
3: Yes, they agreed to spend uh, quite a large amount of money, about 13 or 14 billion US dollars to buy American F-35 fighter jets and uh, a few other things. But uh, the bulk of that 14 billion, 10 billion out of that 14 billion went to these F-35 fighter jets. So This is a pretty significant step up in capabilities for Germany. The F-35 is uh, America's most advanced uh, fighter bomber. It can, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a stealth aircraft. It's, they bought it to carry their nuclear weapons that they also have on loan from the United States. So for Germany, it represents a major acquisition of uh, American technology to to go with what they've already acquired from America in terms of those nuclear bombs.
0: Elaborate a bit on just the significance of the F-35 as as a weapon or what this means for Germany's capabilities, particularly with uh, nuclear weapons, as you just mentioned.
3: So Germany has had uh, nuclear bombs for, on loan from the United States for a long time. Currently, they have Tornado aircraft as the only jet uh, capable of carrying these bombs, and they've had these since the 80s. So definitely not... Cutting edge, but and they, they they dithered for a long long time on what to do. This is kind of a problem that needs to be fixed, but you know they just kept kicking it down the road, extending tornadoes time in service, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, and this is when all of this stems from. Just days after Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, this was one of the first announcements. Germany said, "Well, we're going to buy F-35." fighter jets to carry these bombs. And uh, under the plans that we've seen this week, eight of them are going to be delivered in 2026. They'll have 35 in total. So this rollout came as a direct result to what Russia is doing. And there's a kind of like, okay, well, nuclear weapons, they're a theoretical need. There's something I guess we should probably have um, and we should probably upgrade our planes at some point to we need to do this now. We need to have modern planes that Russian air defences will struggle to shoot down uh, and uh, you know, get the best that we can because we might actually have to use these things sometime. So it uh, represents a, a significant step up in Europe's capabilities, but also a significant step up in Germany militarizing and all prompted by a big step up in their fear of Russia.
0: Well, yeah, that that's uh... – what I'd like to talk about is putting this in the context of what Russia is is doing in Ukraine. This really is significant prophetically, and this is an angle about the Russian offensive in Ukraine that our editor in chief has highlighted quite a lot. Is you have to look at how Europe and particularly Germany responds to this.
3: That's right. We had a whole trumpet issue uh, that came out. It was the May June issue, but it was put together just in the in the days after. Russia kicked off the latest phase of their invasion of Ukraine, uh, and the on the t- the cover of that just says "Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine." But there's a, a range of different articles that talks about how this invasion of Ukraine is kickstarting Bible prophecy, uh, and that main article has that same title: uh, "Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine." And in that, Mr. Flory talks specifically about Germany and about how one of the most important things to watch for in the, after this invasion is how Germany responds. And he had another article in that that dealt directly with F-35s. That article was called uh, America's Naive Trust in Germany uh, on exactly what America is doing and trusting in Germany with these F-35s and uh, and why it is so concerning. So this is something you know, Bible prophecy has a lot to say about a rise of a strong power in Europe. And uh, so. This is something that Mr. Flurry, you can go back to 2013, I think it was, when Russia kind of invaded Ukraine for the first time. Mr. Flurry has always just gotten right back to a well, watch what Germany does, watch what Germany does. And now we have Germany getting the most sophisticated aircraft in the world uh, that can allow them to carry out stealth nuclear strikes because directly because of what Russia is doing. So you know, it's that Bible, it's that prophetic angle that has consistently guided us to say, "Well, watch what Germany does." The Bible says that Germany is going to return to being a strong power, and this is a major catalyst for that. Uh, and so, this is just once again proof of proof of that that guiding principle's accuracy.
0: Well, I would encourage people to go back and take a look at those articles by Gerald Flurry, back from really right near the beginning of this uh, Russian offensive in Ukraine. Bible prophecy comes alive in Ukraine and America's naive trust in Germany. Uh, Those are really reflected in these recent headlines about these F-35 purchases. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. One resource Russia has been tapping in this war is Iranian ballistic missiles. They're finding ways around international efforts to prevent this. To learn about this, we'll turn to Joshua Taylor.
4: At the beginning of December, the Russian deputy uh, defense minister actually went to Iran, and this is their fourth meeting between their military officials, and they decided to to buy short-range ballistic missiles from Iran. And we found out about this because four Israeli officials came out with some intelligence reports to show this. And in those intelligence reports, they showed that despite uh, the international community's pressure on Russia to stop taking military equipment from Iran, stop you know the drones and stuff like that, they're going to go ahead with these deliveries already, despite the fact that this delivery, that these short-range ballistic missiles might actually be a violation of international law, specifically the UN Security Council Resolution 2231, That was a resolution passed within the Security Council around the time that the JCPOA, the original nuclear deal, was signed, and it stated that no nation could buy or receive ballistic missiles from Iran that had a range of greater than 300 kilometers, that's about 190 miles, or a payload greater than 500 kilograms. Now, funny enough, the missiles that the Iranians are sending the Russians is the Fatah-110, this is an advanced precision short-range ballistic missile, which, again, funny enough, has a range of 190 miles and a payload of 500 kilograms. So, literally, right on the line. So, you could very well argue that the that these missiles are going to violate that UN resolution, which would be kind of a problem for Russia, since they sit they're a permanent member of the Security Council and they voted for this resolution. So, that would be a little uh, hypocritical, to say the least.
0: It's. It's a very interesting relationship, this between uh, Russia and Iran, considering the uh, just how both of these nations really are kind of uh, in a bit of uh, pariah status internationally, and yet it seems like the international community really is uh, having a very tough time, uh, kind of bringing their activities to heel. The fact that they're working together. Uh, really provides both of them some some pretty significant advantages.
4: Absolutely. With uh, Russia, Russia right now, as you can imagine, with the war going on in Ukraine, they're getting pretty strapped in terms of their military equipment. We've seen reports all throughout this war of Russia losing tanks and all kind and you know losing personnel it's been a pretty big slog for russia so they're ne- and they're in need of military equipment and iran is all too happy to provide that and then on the other side of the coin you know iran being the per- the pariah state that it is it It's looking to advance its technology, its uh, nuclear capabilities, and that's something that these Israeli uh, officials that brought out this report are concerned about. They said in their report that they are worried that Russia could start providing Iran with engines for its long-range nuclear missiles or its ballistic missiles. Pardon me, again, and that would be in direct violation of that that security uh, UN Security uh, Resolution. But even more than that, even the United States is getting concerned with with this uh, relationship. John Kirby said that uh, Iran offered sorry, Russia and Iran's current uh, relationship is an unprecedented military and technical support relationship. So unprecedented in terms of for Iran and that uh, Iran is basically right now Moscow's top military backer in the world. That So that's that's saying something considering that they have China on their side as well. He said that this deal is transforming their relationship into a full-fledged defense partnership. So that you can see that this is getting more and more concerning as time goes on. So
0: for Iran to be supporting Russia with technology that is being used against European soldiers, uh, we've talked about this before, but this in and of itself has strong prophetic implications.
4: The number one prophecy that we turn to for the Middle East almost every week, basically, is the Daniel 1140 prophecy, which talks about a king of the south pushing against a king of the north. And as we've explained before, the king of the south is uh, radical Islam led by Iran, and the king of the north is a unified uh, Europe led by Germany. And while Iran may not itself be lobbing missiles at a European country, Russia might soon be lobbing Iranian missiles at a your Euro- eastern european nation which is pretty close to a direct fulfillment of this prophecy we're about to see that happen we're about to see iranian weapons used against a european country as this prophecy foretells
0: all right well where would you send people for for more information about that josh
4: For more information, I would direct our readers and listeners to go to thetrumpet.com and and look at the King of the South booklet by Mr. Gerald Flurry. That booklet explains this prophecy and explains this push as well as the future of what this conflict is going to uh, produce.
0: All right, thank you very much for that. Now to America where First Amendment violations continue to be exposed. The Twitter files released more information this week. To learn what we learn from these latest revelations, we'll turn to Andrew Miller.
1: Yeah, we just keep getting more and more Twitter files and uh we'll likely get more and more to come. Elon Musk has promised that there's several more uh several more smoking guns uh from what he's finding looking through here he's uh i think his most recent uh promise is that his new personal pronouns are prosecute fauci uh and so he's saying that the next batch probably twitter files 6.0 or 7.0 uh is going to be quite a bit of information about uh dr anthony fauci and the uh the covid cover-up uh, but in the meantime, last week we talked quite a bit about the, the original Twitter file, the Twitter file 1.0, uh, just about the collusion between the Biden campaign and executives at Twitter to cover up the existence of the Hunter Biden laptop. Uh, in the days since then, we've also found <laughs> in, the, in the Twitter files 2.0 that the um, Twitter was working with the Biden campaign to uh, keep information about covid uh from trending not outright banning but shadow banning uh conservatives who were talking about like the the wuhan lab leak theory then we had a, a really big uh really big uh revelation that actually wasn't a twitter file but the uh the finding that there was a former FBI general counsel working for Twitter who was actually censoring any information critical of the FBI itself from the Twitter files before we even got to see it. Uh, And so uh, Elon Musk has fired him since the last time we talked about this. Uh, And so now we're actually getting more of the nitty-gritty of not just collusion between the Biden presidential campaign and Twitter, uh but collusion between the federal government itself and Twitter um the uh the Twitter files 3.0 had some really uh really shocking emails between uh Twitter's uh head of trust and safety Yoel Roth uh and the FBI uh, specifically right after the January 6th Capitol protest uh Yoel Roth had sent some emails to a colleague of his the uh his his calendar was booked out on a certain day because he was having some very interesting meetings and then the uh the the colleague uh the colleague emailed back with a with a bit of a sarcastic response response saying oh a very boring meeting that is definitely not about trump right and roth replied well you pretty much he's like definitely not meeting with the fbi i swear uh, and so basically admitting that out in the aftermath of those January 6th protests, like the FBI was meeting with uh, Yul Roth to censor, um, to, to talk about actually getting Donald Trump kicked off the platform. Uh, and if you remember back to that time, that was about the time within just a day or so of uh, Michelle Obama's letter asking the, all the big tech companies to... Uh, kick Trump off their platforms and there's some actually some informations in the Twitter files 4.0 and 5.0 about Twitter's collusion with uh, the Obamas as well Uh, so between colluding with the Biden administration uh, the Obamas and the FBI there's there's plenty of collusion between uh, between Twitter and the the radical left and the FBI meeting is probably the um some of the most concerning from a legal standpoint because uh elon musk has really been making that case pretty powerfully that is like said you're not uh private companies have a right to publish what they want um the government the first amendment says that you can't censor freedom of speech but uh you can't just work around that by having the government tell a private company what to censor when that happens twitter becomes uh, a de facto arm of the u.s government uh censoring uh, information critical of one presidential candidate uh, amplifying information critical of another presidential candidate in an attempt to just outright rig elections yeah
0: so many aspects of this story that are very concerning uh and and even more so the fact that the mainstream press is absolutely uninterested and that they won't touch this story. But these revelations really do open the door to all of this, uh, this collusion that was going on. The government specifically, and what's interesting is it's under a Trump presidency, but you have these deep state operatives that are working directly contrary to their own boss, and... Uh, that are beholden to effectively Barack Obama's agenda.
1: Yeah, that is actually quite interesting because now these, because uh, these emails I'm talking about between the FBI annual Roth, they're all around like maybe January 7th, 2021. So uh, after the January 6th protests, but before... Uh, Joe Biden took the office on January 20th. So like I said, said for this this couple-week period when this is happening, this is technically uh, Donald Trump's FBI. He was still the head of the executive branch of the government. So this is FBI officials working with Twitter to get their boss kicked off their platform. Uh, and of course, now Twitter, they're working with the FBI and they're working with the Obamas, Barack and Michelle Obama. And so to get President Trump kicked off of it. So it would be it would still be an egregious First Amendment violation if it happened today under Joe Biden. Like I said if Joe Biden was instructing his FBI to kick Trump off of Twitter, that would be um an egregious violation of an American citizen's First Amendment rights. But because it happened under Trump, now you have Obama uh, and the FBI working to kick their boss off of Twitter. This moves it out of the realm of an egregious First Amendment right and into like, the realm of just outright treason. Mm-hmm. Like, treason against the sitting president. It's not necessarily treasonous for a, an Obama for a, a Biden administration to used to use the FBI to take a citizen's First Amendment rights away. It, it's well, it's treasonous against the Constitution, but it's not treasonous against like the any government. But, any sitting government, but for. FBI officials to be working with Michelle Obama and the FBI to get their boss kicked off of Twitter. Now you're actually you're you're in like coup territory where you've got this cabal of deep state agents who are truly loyal to Barack Obama uh, working to uh, keep their boss from being able to talk to the American people. Uh,
0: Another aspect of this that is is quite stunning is this Joel Roth character. Uh, He's the one who's deciding who gets a voice on Twitter and who doesn't. And a lot of information has come out about his own activities online and his own lifestyle uh, that really put his judgment into question
1: yeah he's definitely a pretty perverted guy uh, without getting into too much details i mean he, he'd been posting stuff on twitter for years about um his interest in pornography and his interest in uh pedophilia and some other pretty reprehensible things that you'd you'd think if the uh, if the fbi was uh if they love censorship so much that uh, maybe they could uh maybe they could censor just some of these some of these things that he's Um, yeah, broadcasting out to America's youth. Uh, but they, they seem to be very, uh, the FBI, they seem to be very pro free speech when it comes to, uh, pedophilia and pornography and these other things that yul roth was interested in but are definitely willing to use a man like him to censor <laughs> to censor someone from donald trump to talk about the election steal uh or or some uh, some doctors who want to talk about the the true origins of covid um or, or even increasingly cases about people who want to warn about the, the the sexualized indoctrination our children are going through in in public schools so that it's um, it really just I think highlights the the double standard of it's it's not um they're they're very they're very concerned with censoring speech critical of the current administration, but very willing to turn a blind eye to uh, all sorts of other filth that some of these uh these people like Yul Roth are promoting. Well,
0: we did get a trumpet brief this week from Stephen Flurry, the uh, the host of the Trumpet Daily Show. He's been talking quite a bit about this, and in this trumpet brief, Twittergate, Barack Obama controls Silicon Valley. He goes into quite a lot of detail about the revelations of these Twitter files. We'll link to that in the show notes. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, a major corruption scandal in the European Union. Still greater unity between the dictators of Russia and China. Tension rising between Europe and Iran, and a shocking story about American authoritarianism, the military coming down on a mom for privately expressing concern about sexualization in her seven-year-old daughter's public education. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. America was recently rocked by the epic corruption scandal of Sam Bankman Freed. Well, a cautionary tale with a similar moral has just played out in the European Union. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer.
3: That's right. I think on the surface, what we've seen in the European Union is very different from Sam Bankman fried but it's heart has a similar similar lesson, like you said. So, uh, Qatar, the Middle Eastern country currently holding the World Cup, uh, has been accused of basically having their officials wandering around the European Parliament handing out bags full of cash. So uh, compared with Sam Bankman fried this is a very low tech, old fashioned kind of a scam. But uh, they've basically just been buying off European politicians uh, to favor their country. The most high-profile person who's accused of being involved in this is uh, Eva Cayley. She's the vice president of the European Parliament, and she's been a noted supporter of Qatar. And uh, Politico is reporting that at this point, police have recovered 1.5 billion euros that they've been found in things like suitcases, brown paper bags, uh all this kind of thing so uh yeah a massive m- massive bribery level of bribery it's a scandal that has kind of that first hit on sunday when uh the uh, first arrests were made and then it's kind of just even widened since then as more more money and and more people have been implicated
0: so what does this say about uh the european union and and how how do you see the the parallels with what happened with sbf
3: So when we covered SPF, we talked about, you know, this is this is inevitably what you get if you shift to a regime or an administration that is opaque, uh, that rules by its own will, does whatever it wants to do rather than following rule of law. uh, When you start to take democracy out of out of the equation, you are inevitably going to get corruption. And it's exactly the same with the European Union, where it's set up with a almost contempt for the will of the people. It's not designed to be particularly democratic. The European Parliament can't initiate legislation. It can't repeal legislation. It's there to make the European Union kind of appear democratic. Uh, that's pretty much its purpose. It gives people, you can vote for someone who can go and talk about stuff and can't do much apart from that. And. The result is that this has been a hive of corruption for years. Politico had a uh, an article which they headlined uh, Parliament of Loopholes, why the Qatar scandal was inevitable. They call it the scandal that everyone saw coming because the European Parliament is fundamentally and thoroughly corrupt. And everybody, everybody who pays an ounce of attention to this knows this. They voted themselves their own special low tax rate, members of the European Parliament, that no one else in Europe gets. They get uh, expense allowances, but they don't have to produce any receipts to show that they're spending these expense allowances on legitimate things. So it's just a, a perk. Uh, they get 300 euros a day just for showing up, even if they're only in the parliament building for five minutes. And there's been lots of journalists recording videos of MPs showing up to work, ticking the name to show that they're there and then leaving for the day. They, they get free chauffeur for Mercedes. They get food and wine for free within the European parliament. Uh, they get staffing allowances that is often used to funnel money to family members. There's, um, the, 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 they get travel allowed, or the money that they get for travel isn't related to how much they act, it actually cost them, but instead is a fixed rate based on the most expensive way to travel. There's all of these different um, perks and, and corruption. Nobody pays any attention. And it's the same with outside interests where other kind of MEPs declaring their outside interests is purely voluntary. And so one MEP just put down, oh, yeah, I do some outside interests. They they listed their interest as economic activity. So they're making money in some form, but it's hard to be more vague than that. You, know, you think about proper representative bodies uh, in proper democracies, and they don't function like this. You know, you have to go and put down and, and say exactly what other jobs you have and, and, and what role that you have them, whereas there's all kinds of people with um, consultancy jobs and things like this. Someone else did just put literally consultancies, but they'll be sitting on an energy committee and working for a power company. That's a literal example. Uh, so it is an absolute hotbed of corruption because it's not democratic. Uh, and I think it's the same You know, as you see America kind of shifting away from the rule of law. An inevitable consequence of that is more corruption. And you're seeing the same thing within the European Union.
0: It feels like the last two or three years in particular, we've, we've been talking about this age of exposure and how there are so many of these activities that have been conducted under the table, in the shadows, behind the scenes that are <coughs> being revealed. Uh, what do you make of looking at this from a standpoint of biblical prophecy, this type of corruption being exposed within the leadership of Europe?
3: Well, I think the the fact that this type of corruption exists is absolutely uh, you know what you'd expect from Bible prophecy, where um, you know the Bible Bible talks about this coming European power really as an empire, you know something that's not democratic, something that is made up of ten kings, uh, something where there's a lot of wealth gets concentrated at the top with um, both within industry, but then in politicians as well. It's a, it's a tremendously rich and powerful empire. So what we're seeing is exactly in line with uh, what you would expect from Bible prophecy. You know, Revelation 17 talks about there being 10 kings. And again, kings are famous for making themselves rich and not for openness and transparency. And uh, I think that point about an age of exposure is really interesting because, yeah, I guess at some point, the veneer of democracy will be dropped. And at some point, I guess they'll no longer pretend it will seem like it no longer matters and we'll have something that is much more um, just openly undemocratic where you have people that are openly fulfilling this type of position as kings and strongmen. Uh, But uh, certainly you, you can see that Europe moving in that in that direction already.
0: Where would you send people for more information on this?
3: So I had an article a few years ago. It's called Europe versus Democracy round 14 that just uh, goes through, I guess, 14 examples of uh, Europe being undemocratic. It goes over some of this corruption, shows how it's tied in with Bible prophecy. It's more specifically focused on something that was going on in Italy at the time. uh, But that wider point of of just this exposes Europe's nature, I think, is, is still something very valid.
0: All right. Thank you very much for that. We'll link to that in the show notes. We appreciate that, Mr. Palmer. The bromance between the dictators of Russia and China seems to keep growing stronger. To learn about the
2: latest example, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, there was a quite a compelling analysis in the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday. And it makes the case that even though Chinese President Xi Jinping has been sort of trying to paint a picture of some distance emerging between China and Russia over the war... Behind the scenes, she is doubling down on what the journal calls his long-term bet on Russia. So the main way that this has been happening is that she has been quietly ordering his government to build stronger economic links to Russia. The analysis goes into quite a bit of detail about China increasing its imports of Russian oil and gas. Those are things that we've discussed in, in a lot of detail on, on the show. Um, he's also now bringing in more of Russia's farm goods, and also entering into more and more joint energy partnerships with Russia, including some notable ones in the Arctic. And then there's also an uptick in Chinese investment in Russian infrastructure. So they're, they're pumping Renminbi into things like ports and railways. And when all of this is put together, it means we're looking at about $200 billion worth of trade between Russia and China for this year. So business is just booming, and it's also significant that a great deal of this business is now being conducted in the Russian ruble and the Chinese yuan. So that works toward a big goal that Xi Jinping and Putin share, which is to you know, to undermine the dollar, get free of the dollar's global power, and that way they can be a lot more insulated from any sort of future sanctions from the US. So the, uh, the appearances might sometimes suggest that Putin has gone too far for Xi Jinping in this war. And that she may be trying to sort of pull away from him, but those are just superficial appearances. And when you look into the actions that she is taking, I think the Wall Street Journal is exactly right, that he's actually doubling down on his Putin bet. That
0: Wall Street Journal article made an interesting observation about what might be motivating she's uh, attachment to, uh, to Putin tell us about that.
2: Sure, yeah. This this uh, journal piece digs into some interesting history about Xi Jinping's father, who actually spent some time in the USSR in the late 1950s, mostly just studying Soviet industry. That was part of Chinese leader Mao Zedong's campaign to have his government look to the USSR, really, as a, uh, a template for everything that China wanted to become, politically, economically, and militarily. So this trip... You know, apparently it left a deep impact on Xi Jinping's father, and that was passed on to a very young Xi Jinping. So that's part of why she has what some have called a Russia complex, just this deep-rooted admiration for all things Soviet and Russian, um, even when there were serious tensions and war between China and the Soviet Union. She's admiration for the USSR stayed intact. Of course, it also survived the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s. And now we see that it is surviving the West's condemnation of Russia's Ukraine invasion, too. So we talk about this uh, quite often, but the
0: The ties between Russia and China are directly prophesied in in Scripture. Uh, Explain that.
2: Sure. Yeah. These, These kinds of stories about deepening cooperation between Russia and China, they are something that the trumpet keeps a very close eye on, and that is because they align with Bible prophecy. We've got a booklet called Russia and China in Prophecy. And it takes a a pretty close look at passages in the books of Ezekiel and Daniel, also Isaiah and Revelation. Um, And these passages together show that Russia and China will soon be working together with other Asian nations and some European nations in a massive economic block. And that'll be a block that just dramatically shuts the US and the UK out of world trade. And then the prophecies show that from there, Russia and China and some Asian nations will pull off from the Europeans and their Asian bloc will become a full military alliance. And, and you know, that'll just become a very significant in time power. So the road to all of this is paved with economic cooperation. And that's a road that Russia and China are clearly already on.
0: All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. We spoke in the first half about Iran helping Russia in its Ukraine war. Well, it's exactly this type of provocative behavior that has a group of European lawmakers pushing for tougher punishments against Iran. For this, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor.
4: This all comes as a bit of a culmination of a lot of political tit-for-tat that's been going back and forth between Europe and Iran over the last couple months even. Uh, Just to give a bit of background, at the end of November, the European Parliament actually uh, severed all relations with Iran. They're no longer having any diplomatic uh, conversations between the two. They will not interact at all until further notice. So. Iran, in response, especially with the protests going on, has been sanctioning European parliamentarians. And this week, they sanctioned six more, blacklisted six more, including two from Spain, one from Slovenia, one from Sweden, one from the Czech Republic, and one from Germany. And it is precisely these uh, members of the European parliament that's now calling on for even greater sanctions on, Jer- sorry, on uh, Iran. And uh, they're citing several different issues. The main issue they're looking at uh, and they're pointing to is the uh, human rights violations that Iran has been committing against its own people, but it all, they also cite the, the, what, the weapons that Russia has been uh, buying from Iran, as well as Iran's nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons development. Uh, Going back to even just from earlier with that first segment that we talked about uh, on Monday, European uh, foreign ministers met and condemned that new sale and said that the European strongly cautions Iran against any new deliveries of weapons to Russia, in particular, any steps towards possible transfers of short range ballistic missiles to Russia, which would constitute a serious escalation. And they also said that they would hold Iran accountable including uh, further sanctions and restrictive measures. So that's just one or two things that's been going on. uh, Just recently this week as well, Iran got kicked off the uh, UN Commission of the Status for Women, which is kind of funny that they were even on to begin with. But you also see the UN taking steps. But again, specifically, um, we're looking at Europe here. Europe and and Iran have been doing this political tit-for-tat for a while now. And you can see that this is starting to get a lot more serious than it has in the past. One of those um, representatives, specifically the one from Spain, said in a telephone interview, said it is important to highlight that Iran is not just a very serious regional threat, but a global threat through their nuclear programs, ballistic missile capacity and alliance with Russia, which would which should be seen as a real game changer. He also went on to say it is no longer the case that this is an issue for Israel to deal with only. And he cited that he believes that up until now, Western engagement with Iran has been based on, quote, wishful thinking and naivete. So you can see that the European Parliament and just Europe in general started to take Iran a lot more seriously, especially with the threats that they've been having, especially with the, the weapons being sent to uh, Russia.
0: You mentioned in your first half segment Daniel 11 and verse 40 that specifically talks about this clash, a provocation by Iran that results in a devastating retaliation by Europe. This is very much a foreshadowing of that.
4: Mm, Yes. Within the uh, Daniel 11 verse 40, we talked about in the first half, that first part of that prophecy, the push from Iran. But that second half of the prophecy talks about a whirlwind assault from the European Union coming against Iran to, to destroy it and wipe it out. And that's as you said, this is this political machinations, these political tit-for tats. We're starting to see uh, Europe take the, Iran's threat more seriously. and you can definitely see a foreshadowing of that prophecy being fulfilled when Germany and the Euro- and Europe will deal strongly militarily with Iran, not just politically.
0: Well, we have a reprint article from our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, called Germany's Secret Strategy to Destroy Iran that talks in detail about the the prophecy that uh, Mr. Taylor is referencing there. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. We're going to finish today's show with a very alarming story of American authoritarianism. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller.
1: Yeah, there have been a lot of details emerging over the past uh, months and years over just the amount of like sexualized propaganda that's being put in school children's books. Um, things about homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, even a new a new phrase they call pansexuality, which made a pretty disturbing news story this week, where uh, a local mother in New Jersey, Angela Reading, uh, found out that her child's elementary school was advertising pansexuality, and uh, and went on Facebook to uh, to complain about it. And now after she posted her complaint, she actually had someone comment on her post, uh, a soldier, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Schilling, stationed at the joint base, uh, at a joint base in the region. Uh, and he uh, he accused her of being a, an extremist for her camp for her complaint uh, and told her that the joint leadership base we have security forces working with multiple state and local law enforcement agencies to monitor the situation which is quite a statement the the US military does not have any constitutional authority uh, to be performing local law enforcement. Uh, operations of any kind, uh, much less monitoring social media communications for people opposed to pansexuality. And um, Angela reading, she gave an interview about this uh, where she uh, she thought that maybe this Christopher Schilling guy was just uh, a rogue element at the local military base and and maybe not operating in an official capacity under the Biden administration. However, he said that he was working with multiple state and local law enforcement agencies to monitor the situation uh, and uh, a local police officer did contact uh, Angela reading shortly after that. Uh, advising her to take down the Facebook post. So apparently he's uh, the the base was in contact with at least one with at least one local law enforcement officer, and there's uh, putting this together with other stories. Uh, it's definitely very believable that the uh, the radical Joe Biden administration is in fact using military personnel. Uh, in domestic surveillance operations uh, to uh, find out if you're making uh, making posts on Facebook or, or Twitter or, or other social media sites against this whole uh, transgender homosexual uh, agenda that they're pushing in our children's schools. Right. If, if
0: this were just a uh... a one-off case if this were in isolation it would be shocking enough but you put it together with you have uh, there are a lot of dots to connect showing this increasingly militant agenda on the part of the government the uh the the promotion of the military which is meant to be defending us against foreign threats into uh promoting lgbtq uh propaganda this type of thing is happening more and more this and and for this to be taking place against uh, a private citizen expressing an opinion on a on a social media website it truly is stunning
1: yeah i mean i've seen plenty of reports that they said actually some of the worst uh sexualized indoctrination occurring in america right now is occurring on military bases like the children of um of soldiers because on a local level you have local school boards state officials you have some checks and balances to complain with uh if you're actually in a military school the state and local there is no state and local government you're just uh the the federal government runs those so the the biden administration is able to be much more aggressive wow uh in a military school in ways they can't at state and local levels. But this is really one of the, <laughs> the most shocking cases I've seen of actually military officials, not just promoting these values in a military school or on a mill or on an offshore base, uh, but actually policing what parents are saying against their local school, uh, and then threatening them that with, uh, by having a, a local police chief uh, call them and tell them that you have to take down that post. Now, that's, we, we talked a bit in the first part about like First Amendment violations. And so this wasn't even a Facebook official on behalf of Mark Zuckerberg saying, take that post off my, my site. This is a local police chief instructing you to take down a post. Based on instructions he got from a federal military official, which is yeah, just one of the most um, egregious First Amendment violations you can you can think of, uh, aside from the profound uh, moral perversity of the whole situation. Well, if
0: you would like to learn more about the the force behind this agenda that really is transforming America, uh, you can order a copy of our free booklet Redefining Family that talks about this sexualization of society and uh, moving toward increasingly perverse forms of, of sexuality. Uh, we'll link to the... Uh, to that booklet in the show notes for the program here today. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at Trumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer, and thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Will Durant, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself within. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm.
2: Understand your world.